Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Barring an act of God, Boris Johnson is going to be leader of the Conservative Party this time next week and probably, though we might come on to this, not absolutely definitely Prime Minister. It feels like an important staging post on a journey we've been on while we've been doing this podcast, so we're going to do this in two parts. Today we're going to talk about the domestic implications, next week we're going to talk about Brexit and Europe. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. When I say we're going to talk about the domestic implications, I mean Helen is going to talk to me about it. We haven't done this for a while. I think the last one we did was on Theresa May. And that was November-ish. So (laughs) seven months is a long time in politics. I want to start with something, Helen, that you said, I think maybe two months ago, but it has really stayed with me. So when we were talking about Theresa May in the late autumn... But even when we were talking about the state of British politics, after she lost the first attempt to get her Brexit deal through Parliament in January and February, the idea that Boris Johnson would be a shoe-in to win the Conservative leadership, both with the MPs and with the members, so with the members maybe less surprising, but that he would clean up with the MPs, would have seemed very remote. A couple of months ago, you said, we need to remember that something shifted to make this possible. So in the Brexit narrative... The important events for this outcome must be post-Christmas, because at Christmas it wouldn't have happened. And so there is a question of what that thing is or what those things are, and did people miscalculate? How did we get from there to here? So I think when you said this last time, the thing that you flagged up was Theresa May entering into futile negotiations with Jeremy Corbyn, which in a way signaled for people who had been even contemplating that her deal would finally creep over the line. If that's what it would take, then it's no longer a runner. And once that's taken off the table, then suddenly it becomes much more binary. Is that is that the thing that made the difference? Did that get us here? Yes, but I think we've got to go back a bit. Back, I think, to the third attempt to get the meaningful vote for the withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons. Because And, and to remember, that was the one that Boris Johnson voted in favour. Absolutely, favor. and as did um, Jacob Rees-Mogg. And Dominic Robb. Yeah, so that was her chance. And there were certain thing, reasons why it didn't come about. And the first was that Steve Baker, who, you know, from what's been said afterwards, looked like he had some doubt as to whether he really was going to oppose, went down the oppose route and took the rest of the, or appears to have taken the rest of the ERG with him. Though I suspect someone like Bernard Jenkins probably would have got there by themselves. But you had the fact that the ERG, enough of the ERG, didn't budge despite the fact that Boris Johnson, Dominic Robb and Jacob Rees-Mogg moved. Then you've got the fact that she could never minimise or reduce, perhaps a better way of describing it, those remain Conservative MPs who were voting against the withdrawal agreement. Then you've got the fact that the DUP weren't willing to move. And then you've got the fact that those Labour MPs who looked like that they were going as long as they got that amendment, so um, Gareth Snell and Lisa Nandy, pulled back at the last minute when the amendment wasn't accepted by the Speaker, even though Theresa May said that the substance of the amendment would have been accepted by the government. 
So there was possibilities from each of those four groups to move to, or at least some in each of those four groups to move towards her, and it didn't happen. And just to be clear, how many of them do you think would need to have moved? Because so Steve Baker doesn't move, and he gets Boris Johnson as Prime Minister as his reward, and he probably thinks, job done. Lisa Nandy doesn't move, and she gets Boris Johnson as her Prime Minister as her reward, and she might think, I possibly miscalculated I think she's pretty much said she's miscalculated. But if she had moved on her own, it wouldn't have been enough if she and those Labour people moved on their own. Again, the DUP don't move. They get Boris Johnson as their Prime Minister. It's an open question whether they think they miscalculated or not. But more than one of those groups would have had to move, right? It's not like Absol- one no, of them can say we no. were the sufficient condition no, of this No, but I think it would have been easier for... If one of them's moving, then it becomes easier for others to move. So if the DUP move, it becomes easier for those ERGs who were holding out. It probably becomes easier for the Labour MPs if some of the ERG move, because then there's an actual prospect it's going to get through. But... What we've been into since then is the situation where the date of the 31st of March had fallen away. So the people like Boris Johnson himself and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who were willing to accept the withdrawal agreement unpalatable as they found it because they thought that there was an electoral payoff for the Conservative Party to leave the European Union, and they did think it was a genuine risk that Britain would not end up leaving the European Union and the people who want to stop it would succeed... Their calculation has changed too. You say, why did their calculation change? I think it partly changes because of the fact of what Theresa May then did, which was basically to open up the possibility that the price of the withdrawal agreement was a commitment to a customs union, not permanently, but at least for the foreseeable future. And that for them was something that they weren't willing to accept. But the other reason why it changed is, is because once we got past the 31st of March, the Conservative Party support fell away. And the Brexit Party And the Brexit emerged. Party emerged. And so suddenly the political problem is really different than it was in March from the point of view of Conservatives who wanted to leave the European Union. So there's no way of knowing this, but I'm curious to think about what Johnson's calculation was pre the 31st of March, because... When he voted for that deal, with the possibility that it might pass, that made the prospect of him becoming Prime Minister more remote, I think. Mm. So it's really changed for him too. I mean, again, it's we're all living this roller coaster, but he's living it too, unless he's more calculating than we give him credit for. I'm still trying to work out who miscalculated and who was just kind of like on a path that they were on anyway. Well, I think that it's pretty clear that the Labour MPs in question miscalculated because they've pretty much said that they regret what they've done, both Gareth Snell and Lisa Nandy. I'm not sure what they thought was going to happen if they did what they did, but whatever it was thought they thought was going to happen is not what has happened. And now they're saying they would have voted for the withdrawal agreement if they'd known what they know now. Stephen Kinnock in that group? Or not? He hasn't said that explicitly. Although he has said the withdrawal agreement is the only yeah. deal in town. So I think that the people on the ERG, like Steve Baker, they can say that they have got something that they want, which is a different Conservative leader, even though, remember, they already were going to get that because Theresa May had already said that she was leaving once the agreement was passed. So it's not like Theresa May's leaving can simply be put as something that happened after the 31st of March. It was set up before the 31st of March. But if she had left after the agreement being passed, presumably, if nothing else, it would have been a much more competitive contest to succeed her than it has proved to be. I mean, I think a lot of people, including me, have been struck by how non-competitive it has been. I mean, essentially, every obstacle has just been rolled over 
by Johnson and his pretty effective operation. Um, and it has been effective. And not least, I think we've learned that they calculated right when they thought stick him up against Hunt, not Gove, which they clearly engineered. But still, the complete absence of any traction in any attempt to stop him would not have been true if May had left after passing her deal, surely. I think you're probably right. I mean, it's still a little bit difficult, I think, to see who the really competitive candidate was, particularly given the fact that Gove just does seem to run into difficulties that somehow are quite hard to explain, but they just seem some sort of inexorable political reality that he can't that he can't get past. I mean, I think that what is true, though, is that the path for the Conservatives to find a way out of this in any electoral sense just got so narrow and that enough Conservative MPs have come to the conclusion that the only person who has any chance of walking that narrow path is Boris Johnson. Now, whether they're right or not, and some of them might think the probabilities of him actually walking that narrow path to him leading the United Kingdom out of the European Union without precipitating an electoral disaster for the Conservative Party, that the probabilities are still, you know, not very high. But it's still, I think it is plausible to suggest that there is no one else who could even begin to start walking the path. And what about the calculations from the leadership of the Labour Party? I think, again, with hindsight, we can say that those negotiations were never going anywhere. The Labour strategy has been consistent in one sense, which is to try and get the Conservatives on the hook for this and have them on the hook for it when an election comes. So they're going to get a Boris Johnson prime ministership. If you offered them that a year ago, is that the thing that they wanted? And we're going to come on to Trump in a second, because there's a question about the relationship between a Johnson prime ministership and a Trump presidency. But there's something going on in the United States, which reminds me a bit of British politics. So one of the things that we do on this podcast is ask ourselves the question, do the old rules still apply? And the classic old rule of electoral politics is divided parties lose. So what you want to do is divide the opposition. And yet, Trump, with what he's doing at the moment in the States around the Democrats and the squad, as they're called, and the relationship between the young, more left Congresswomen and Nancy Pelosi is to force them together. And there's something similar going on with Labour strategy here, I think, which is to calculate that if you can force the Conservative Party to unite around Boris Johnson, that possibly actually is your best bet. But it seems to me it's a huge risk because it does rest on the assumption that the old rules no longer apply, that a more divided party, which is Labour, actually, I think currently, would defeat a party that is united around a more unpopular figure. And that's the same calculation, I think, that Democrats and Republicans are having to make, if this makes sense. So then if you look at it from Labour's point of view, if that's what they wanted, they've got it. They've got a Conservative Party that will, with a few exceptions, unite around a potentially very divisive leader. Seems to me it's a big risk. I don't think it's what they wanted either. I think if we think about it in, in terms of Labour, we have to go back to the way things were sort of between the first meaningful vote and the second meaningful vote and the first round of those indicative votes that precipitated, appeared anyway, to precipitate Change UK and Chuck Amuna in particular. Seems like um, a long time ago. <laughs> leaving, because whatever else that did, it seemed to change the balance of power within the Labour Party in terms of parliamentary tactics, such that it seemed that Tom Watson got some kind of 
I won't say control, but sharper influence, let's at least put it that way, over the whipping. So that you could interpret what the Labour leadership was trying to do was to allow the withdrawal agreement to go through with the tacit support of enough of the parliamentary Labour Party without the leadership's hands in any way having to get dirty to allow that to come about. And the the whipping operation on that night, I think it was the first in indicative votes where Chuck Munin got very angry, clearly was near to non-existent. After that, it became tighter. So I think I'm right in saying that actually there was fewer Labour votes for the meaningful vote the second time round and fewer abstentions than there'd been the first time round. So the leadership in that sense was defeated because I think what it wanted was to allow Brexit to happen and make it that the Conservatives own it and that didn't work. I think one way of reading what's happened since is is that the Labour leadership has really not run out of options because it can move to a, a more clear remain position and it's clearly been pushed in that direction but that what it was essentially gambling on which was to allow Brexit to happen and then hope that a general election would come quite quickly in which it would be able to exploit what it hoped would then be some of the unpopular aspects of of Brexit hasn't worked. And now it's back to having to deal with a very divided party. And I think it is not insignificant that actually the Labour Party is actually looks now more divided than it did a few months ago. And it kind of fits part of what you're saying. And you have MPs who voted against the withdrawal agreement now say, I think it was Sarah Champion, was it? Now saying that actually faced with a choice between no Brexit and no deal, they they would prefer no deal. And we haven't had anybody, or except for Kate Hurry, really in that position in the Labour Party, articulating that kind of position before. So on the one hand, you've got the Labour Remainers who look emboldened by what's happened within the party since the 31st of March, but you've also got now a greater spread of opinion. I completely take all that, but isn't it still possible if you go back a year that there was one thing that the Labour leadership would have wanted more than May's deal to stumble over the line, to have Tory fingerprints all over it with a few Labour people having helped it there, and then hope for a general election, which is the thing that could happen, which isn't an election before Brexit happens. Wasn't that always their dream outcome? Because, again, what that could potentially do is completely split the Brexit vote. And if the Brexit vote splits then Labour would form the next government. And that prospect, which wasn't there, sort of Christmas time, an election before Brexit happening. I mean, I always thought, you know, at some point, because this parliament couldn't agree on anything, we'd get to an election. But that prospect is now real for the autumn. It's still probably not more likely than not, but this government could collapse, the future Johnson government could collapse, and then you get an election before Brexit. And that must be the thing they want most of all, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you go back to the second half of 2017, after the general election, that is certainly, you know, like what they wanted and appeared to believe was coming, that they were going to be in power by Christmas. And then the next Christmas, and now there's another Christmas. 2017. I think that things now, uh, it's harder to see that coming about. I mean, first of all is is the the strategic imperative, or tactical, it's tactical really, tactical imperative for the Conservatives not to hold a general election before Brexit is done is overwhelming and I would think that if you were a Conservative MP then the prospect of a second referendum is actually less awful than the prospect of a general election because you lose a second referendum and you haven't lost power 
whereas it's pretty difficult to see how the Conservatives can possibly even remain the largest party under circumstances in which the UK hasn't left the European Union. So then you've got to say, okay, well, are there enough people in the Parliamentary Conservative Party who would be willing to precipitate a general election by voting no confidence in a Boris Johnson government if it seemed that Boris Johnson was going to pursue the no deal option. And I'm not saying that that's impossible, but I think that that's a, that's a huge deal for MPs of their own party to do that. I can imagine that people who've been categorically opposed to Brexit from the beginning and have perhaps got nothing left to lose in terms of their parliamentary careers, like Dominic Grieve, might do it. But I, it, it needs more than it probably needs more than a couple, particularly when you've got around now fifteen independent MPs who have got their own reasons for not wanting an election and might be willing to back the government in a confidence vote. I, I just think the mechanisms by which that general election come about are really, again, it's a, it's a very very narrow path. And we don't know. So one of the things that we don't know there's the nominal majority for this government if they lose the by-election that's coming up a week after Johnson gets the leadership is three I think yeah but we don't know what that means anymore I mean it's not like a traditional understanding of a majority one party has a majority of three because when you get below that number it's pretty unstable I think how the coalitions form I've thought about looking into this, but I haven't yet done it. Is is like has there been a parliament where you ended up with all these people effectively leaving their parties for one one reason or another. I mean, we have got people who've done that in relation to the whip, either voluntarily or because they've had the whip taken away from them. From all three of the main parties, it's not happened in the case of the Scottish Nationalists, I think. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I don't think that it's happened there. But it's happened for the Labour, it's happened for the Conservatives, and it's happened for the Liberal Democrats. So we weren't going to talk about Brexit. This was going to be about other stuff. So next week, we've got Chris Bickerton and Catherine Barnard with us, and we're going to talk about some of the possible scenarios and also sequences that get us through the autumn because the autumn is going to be interesting I want to talk about a few other things that surround the possibility of a Boris Johnson prime ministership we don't know how long it will last but it's at least possible that it could last a conventional length of time and if it does then it really matters what kind of government it's going to be so one question it does relate to the calculations that were made by the people who have lined up behind him and this has been the news of the last week or 10 days a Boris Johnson prime ministership, at least potentially, it's both advantage and huge possible hazard, is a new relationship with the United States and particularly an ability to forge a new kind of relationship with the Trump presidency leading to the holy grail of some mega trade deal. I mean, whether that's realistic or not, I don't know, but at least that, that can be the narrative that Boris has opened the door to a post-Brexit Britain having a really exciting relationship with the United States because these two men can work together. So that also seems like a big gamble. We've seen a little bit of it over the last week or so and it's sort of it's around the edges of people's misgivings about Johnson but also their excitement about Johnson. But given we're also talking about Trump here, Donald Trump is lots of things but one consistent pattern that's emerged is that he destroys everyone that he touches. I mean, that's the thing that he does. And I would be really nervous if I was the Conservative Party having a Prime Minister whose fate might in any sense be dependent on his relationship with Donald Trump. 
So Theresa May's fate was not dependent on her relationship with Trump. It wasn't good, but it, that was not what did for her. But Johnson, at least potentially, has much more at stake in that relationship. I would be terrified of having a lot at stake, whoever I was, whether I was like you know worked in his office or was a member of his family, having a lot at stake in my relationship with Donald Trump. Scare the thought of it scares me. I think, and some what you're saying, I think my premise would start in a slightly different place, which is is that every European leader has got a problem with the relationship with Donald Trump. And I think that Theresa May, it was part of the fate of her premiership in in some ways, is, is that I think that she took a lot of criticism when she went to Washington to see him early on. Then when it unraveled and then he came for the first of those visits and he, you know, I think it was he gave an interview to The Sun basically saying Boris Johnson would be a, a great prime minister. It, it added to the sense of someone who was beleaguered and who was strategically adrift in terms of simultaneously trying to work out a post-Brexit relationship or getting to the point of being able to work out a post-Brexit relationship with the European Union and not seeming to buy into what the Conservative right or the ERG think is the geopolitical and economic advantage or opportunity that um, Brexit brings about. And I think it's causing Angela Merkel problems. In a different way, it's caused Macron problems because he tried to court Trump to try to maintain the Iran deal and then, then it didn't work. So anybody who's Prime Minister in a European country has got to work out what to do about this relationship. But isn't there still a difference between those things where it fits the pattern that everything he touches turns to dust and actually genuinely needing something from him to survive, which is possibly going to be the case here? So he can do damage to all these people, and he does. He does it by being fickle. He does it by being horrible. He does it by being unpredictable. But they didn't actually need something from him in order to survive. But Johnson might wind up in that position. And he's not to be relied on. Ultimately, the prospects of any US-UK trade deal are going to go way beyond Donald Trump, not least because the Congress would have to ratify this trade agreement. And there's all kinds of other factors that would come into play there. I mean, I think it's clear that Johnson would want a different kind of relationship with not just Trump, but with the United States, and that he would would try to invest something in his ability to get on personally with Trump. And that would be, for the reasons that you said, a tremendous risk, because on the personal level that these things tend to, to go wrong. I mean, I think that the test thing that would come quite early on would be the issue of Iran, because so far the British government has hugged the French and the German government close on the Iran issue, basically in opposition to what Trump wants. And there's enough noise, I think, around the edges of Johnson and the people there to think that the people close to him, or as far as anyone is capable of being close to him, to think that, that Johnson might make a different calculation on that and risk a confrontation with the French and Germans and move towards taking more Trump's side on Iran. And that will matter because of the fact that Trump clearly wants to tighten the sanctions noose around Iran pretty soon. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you think it's also possible that here the path is even narrower than the Brexit path, which is, I mean, so we've seen it this week. Johnson and Hunt were both asked whether they would condemn Trump's tweets about the squad, as they're known. So they did absolutely condemn them. And Boris Johnson said that they were completely unacceptable, but they wouldn't call them racist. But nonetheless, Johnson said, it's completely unacceptable. You can't say these things that went out decades ago. And he had to say that. You can't You can't be a British prime minister with any, which he still has, small L liberal credentials and not say that. And yet even saying that is saying too much for Trump because Trump does not like people to tell him that things are totally unacceptable. Is there anything that Johnson, Boris Johnson can say that will not alienate Trump but also will not alienate the British public? I don't think there is. People say he's a Trumpish politician, but he's not because there are so many things that he cannot say that Trump can say. And then when Trump says them, he has to condemn them. If he doesn't condemn them, he's, he's in trouble in a completely different way. That's what seems so risky for me. So, yeah, there's the sort of geopolitical stuff, but there is the interpersonal stuff. And Trump, it's not just that he's transactional, he's vindictive. And he's also, if he sees on Fox News Boris Johnson saying that what he said was totally unacceptable, that could be it. It could, but I don't think that that's actually any different than the predicament that he puts every single European leader leader, um, in. Because... There is a, let's just call it for shorthand, a geopolitical reality. And that is, is that the United States is the dominant power in the world and that the European states or most of the West European states are in a security alliance with the United States. And for reasons of their domestic politics, they need to be pretty critical of that president of the United States. And that means that the line to walk is, you know, is extraordinarily narrow. And then it's got a massive capacity to go wrong. And I say, I do think it played some part in in Theresa May's difficulties. I think to begin with, that she thought that actually getting closer to Trump was a way of gaining some possible leverage in relation to negotiating with the European Union. And then she found even on that, that what she thought she was trying to get for Britain wasn't close enough to what he thought should happen. And he was quite happy to to tweet away about it and give interviews about it and say that she didn't know what she was doing and and she was um, incompetent. So that sense of like, what's the line between the international politics and the domestic politics cuts both ways because he's quite happy to say what he wants to say about everyone else's domestic politics too. I don't think it's quite been tested yet the extent to which pro-Brexit feeling in this country correlates with an attitude to Trump. There is a strong anti-Trump feeling in Britain, and it does cut across. And many of the things that Trump says, I think, when they're polled, most people dislike them at the very least. And that would include, I think, the things that he was saying this week. Yet there's also a kind of anti-anti-Trump sentiment too, which is a lot of the hand-waving and rending of garments about Trump, I think, alienates people who are generally alienated by metropolitan anti-Brexit sentiment. I think it's an open question the extent to which a really skillful politician could... I mean, the the one way Johnson could possibly walk this line is to tap into... This sounds a bit overcomplicated, but to tap into anti-anti-Trump feeling. So some of the things that Trump says are completely unacceptable for most British voters. And yet some of the 
I'm trying to find the word for this, some of the thinking behind them, some of the frustration that Trump is trying to channel is shared by not a majority, but a significant proportion of the British electorate. And that's probably the pro-Brexit portion. And whether a skillful politician, I don't know yet. I don't think we know yet. And I think the polling on British attitudes to Trump is fairly crude, has been so far. But this could become a really live issue, whether it's possible to distance yourself from the worst of Trump and to somehow signal that what you do have in common with Trump is your frustration with knee-jerk liberal anti-Trumpism. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think that there's something in that that is, a, if you like, a, an abstractly defined political space that somebody could try to move into. How you would actually do that on a day-by-day basis and what kind of narrative you could construct around that that wouldn't create any number of problems for you is a whole other matter. And we, we may be about to discover, but it's also true what may be different in this case is that there is a section of the Conservative Party which will be egging Johnson on to Atlanticize everything that he can and that that may make this harder. I mean, there, there are cheerleaders, not explicitly, I think, for Trump. And Steve Baker tweeted a critical thing about Trump's remarks this week, contrasting him with Reagan, saying Reagan is the America that we want. So it's not a huge constituency there, but there are probably enough people who think, let's not be too squeamish about this. And that also may make it hard, because you've got to be a bit squeamish about it. I think the thing as well, in the Conservative Party, it's not really clear how much of a at least within the parliamentary Conservative Party, I mean by that, how much of a constituency there is for anything that really looks like Trump-like politics. Not least because most of the people who are most committed to a particular notion of Brexit, the one that basically wants to cast this as an economic opportunity, so doesn't see Brexit in defensive terms, but sees it in offensive terms in economic and political way, really are what self-identified economic liberals and that isn't what Trump is. So, you know, that whole thing that Trump has about trying to make the United States a manufacturing economy again, bring, as he sees it, blue-collar jobs back to the United States, that isn't a politics that attracts Steve Baker. That's it, not Singapore-like. No, in, in any way whatsoever. It's not that there's there's no sort of potential common ground because you, you could argue that, that Trump is trying to use cultural in fact he is trying to use a certain version of cultural nationalism for his own purposes and there's an element of a certain kind of cultural nationhood if you like in aspects of the Brexit support within the Conservative Party but I think what's striking in the Conservative Party the Parliamentary Conservative Party I mean really over the last 10 years or so since the Eurozone crisis anyway is is that the focus of those arguments by the most committed Brexiteers have really been primarily economic. And it is the the EU regulates too much, the EU stops us having the kind of trade relationships that we want. It's not the old style, there is something about the British constitution and what it means historically that needs to be defended from the European Union kind of Euroscepticism any longer. And you couldn't get a less Trumpish statement than the one that is always being quoted that Patrick Minford made the pro-Brexit economist where he more or less said the car industry needs to go the way of the coal industry and that's part of the cleansing effects here. That is not Trump. (laughs) That's the opposite of Trump. One last thing on Trump, then I want to ask you another question about economics. The party that threatens, is said to pose an existential threat to the Conservative Party, the Brexit Party, is led by someone who is 
Mm. I mean, so far, I, I don't actually know what Nigel Farage's vision is of a future British economy, but he's definitely very, very closely allied to Trump. So that's also both a challenge and an opportunity for Johnson. If it is true, as you describe it, that there really isn't that Trumpish constituency in the Conservative Party. In the parliamentary party. In the parliamentary party. So there is among the, potentially among the members and among the electorate, but to differentiate himself from Farage on those grounds. This is a point of difference between them and the Brexit Party. I mean, people voted for the Brexit Party for a million reasons and for one reason only. And there wasn't that space in between where policy might be. But that is a difference between their leadership. I think that the the difficulty that the Brexit Party poses for a Johnson-led Conservative Party, even assuming that he can walk that very narrow path to having the United Kingdom leave the European Union, is that in order to try to get to having a parliamentary majority, and it's difficult to see how a, this government can last, you know, like maybe beyond next summer with a new leader and without having a, a parliamentary majority, is that if Britain leaves the European Union, it puts at risk a set of seats that the Conservatives have taken, or some of which anyway, the Conservatives have taken for granted for winning for a long time, because it's going to lose, particularly under, under any circumstances, no deal, it's going to lose a section of Tory votes, Tory Remainer voters, affluent Tory Remainer voters. So it's got to compensate. I mean, to put it in sort of the terms of the last general election, if it's losing Kensington and it wins Mansfield, it's got to find some more Mansfields to win for every Kensington that it's going to lose. And to be clear, it's not just going to be losing Kensington, it's going to be losing to the Lib Dems in a range of seats across the South. So it's not necessarily to Labour. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. But the point on the Mansfield side, then finding some more Mansfields uh, to win, is is that is where where the Conservative Party will have to compete with the Brexit Party. Now, the only way I think in which you could say that that wouldn't happen would be in the event of a, of a no-deal Brexit that happens by the 31st of October. But if that happens, then the problem on the seats in the South that are at risk to the Liberal Democrats multiplies, and then those seats in Scotland, which I think are already at risk of being written off under a Johnson premiership, the whole lot of them may well tumble. So that's where I think that it's again quite difficult to see what the Conservative Party can do because it's not easy to see how it can avoid competition with Farage for the seats they're trying to add to the Mansfield list or indeed even to defend Mansfield. When Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party I remember there was always this talk about what do these leaders do in their first 72 hours and it was said at the time that there's only one really consequential decision that he has to make and it will signal the future shape of his leadership. And that decision is, who does he make Shadow Chancellor? Mm. And it was said by many people, if he makes John McDonnell Shadow Chancellor, that will send a signal which will basically set the tone for the next whatever period. And it was true. And it absolutely did. A lot of people were very shocked, but it made completely clear the kind of leadership that Corbyn was going to offer, and he hasn't budged. And John McDonnell is still Shadow Chancellor. So there are many things that Boris Johnson might do, assuming he gets to be Prime Minister in his first 72 hours. But I think it's also possible to say that who he chooses as his Chancellor is the single most important. And it will send a signal because the different possible candidates do potentially represent different kinds of economic philosophy. So Liz Truss is one, and she seems more libertarian. She's a possible candidate. She wants a Deliveroo Britain, if want a better phrase. Sajid Javid is potentially more interventionist in some of his 
approaches and willing to countenance some more on that sense some more slightly trumpish approaches to state intervention and then matt hancock who i don't suppose it will be but say it were matt hancock is more small l liberal in in other ways and given it's the most important job apart from being prime minister but also that johnson is not really it's not clear what he believes this is going to be the signal I think that's the one that really matters. I mean, I think the most important decision next week, there'll be many more important decisions further down the line, the most important decision next week, if he becomes Prime Minister, is who is his Chancellor. And it would be a very different government with Truss versus one of those other two. And he's also said one of the top four jobs has to go to a woman. So that probably doesn't mean the Chancellorship, but it might. I think that this is hard to think about because of the fact of like what attitude he's going to take to economic decision making because on the one hand you'd say look he doesn't want to do detail he's never wanted to do detail so whoever this chancellor is is going to have quite a A lot to do (laughs) yeah that'd be one way of putting it on the other hand it's pretty difficult to see how you can have any kind of economic policy decision making that's detached from the brexit question because what happens on brexit is going to be crucial to what kind of economic policy comes next I would have thought as well that if he were thinking strategically about it, a big if, that it's got to be a pretty political chancellorship as well, in the sense of if you are trying to get to the point where you can have a general election sometime in the next year-ish, and that you're going to solve this, or not solve, but reduce the problems of the seat dilemma that you're looking at, the chancellorship decisions are going to turn on which of the groups that you've potentially got in your coalition you need to appease so is it the case that you've gone for no deal brexit and you need to do something to appease tory remainers and i think if you go back to the beginning of his campaign that's where that talk about tax cuts came from it was kind of like okay you might have to put up with something that you don't like on really really don't like on brexit but not only will we protect you from the extra taxation that Corbyn threatens, but we're actually going to give you a, a tax cut to the affluent Tory remainers. At the same time, though, if you're also in a, in a no-deal Brexit situation, again, I want to keep stressing that that is a, a big if, then you want to keep those voters in Mansfield, to use that as a symbol, on side, then you've got to do something for them economically so I, I can't see how this chancellor whoever it turns out to be can have a very ideological approach to economic policy decision making at all it's, it's all got to be about trying to maintain the coalition that the conservatives managed to maintain in the last general election and probably given the problems that johnson is going to cause in in scotland find some way of making one of the sides a bit bigger is one reason to go for an election sooner rather than later the fact that, as was pointed out after the event, Theresa May chose to call an election at a time when wages were falling. And it was a relatively narrow window in which they were falling quite fast. And there is, again, a general rule of politics, which is do not call an election when wages are falling. Wages are currently rising at a faster rate than they have done, I think, since 2008. Good moment to have an election. I, think, I mean, who knows if those rules still yeah, apply? I mean, this, this goes back to the issue of like, what kind of politics are we in and how much of the old politics have we left behind? I mean, it would be odd to think that economic conditions don't matter in terms of elections. I mean, that seems too far to th- out to think that everything's changed so that they don't matter at all. But 
they may well matter less than in the past. And again, I think when thinking about it, we have to mediate it through or disaggregate what's going on because the different groups in the Conservative Party's coalition have really very different economic experiences now. So let's end with, I'm not going to ask you who's going to win this general election when it comes, but there is a basic question which goes back to the point I was making earlier about whether divided parties can win. And the Labour Party is Labour Party is more divided than any party, any major party that I can ever remember because its leader and its deputy leader are in a war to the death. And that is not true of the Conservative Party. Okay, it was true of the Labour Party, Blair and Brown, post-2005, but it wasn't, the stakes weren't as high as they are here, I don't think. The Labour Party is really divided. The Conservative Party is potentially divided on some things, but there seems to be a kind of core group that does come together and possibly is willing to come together around Johnson. The fundamental question still seems to be, will the disciplining effect of first-past-the-post politics work in the way it worked in 2017, so that potentially people who might vote Lib Dem because they want to stop Brexit or because they're so furious about a no-deal Brexit, and that they don't think that Labour's position is helpful on this, still think that the only way you can actually push back or fight against a Johnson premiership is to vote Labour because nothing else will give you an alternative. That seems to me to be the basic question. And it must be possible, say, ignoring what we've said till now, that Johnson is a kind of Trumpish politician in some ways. And so there's a ceiling to his support. Most people are against that kind of politics, but maybe up to 40% of people are for it. Like Trump's ceiling is 45, so it's 40 here. Under some versions of our electoral system, 40% wins you an absolute landslide if the opposition are divided. That's what Theresa May thought she was going to get with her 42%. But it turned out there was 40% on the other side because everyone gathered around the only viable option and they swallowed all of their doubts and they ignored all the things that they knew were true but they would prefer not to be true because they recognised the only way to stop it was through Labour. Isn't that still the basic question? And I'm not sure it will go the same way this time, but it's possible that it will. If it doesn't, then Johnson could be Prime Minister for a long time. The basic question is, will the opposition to a Johnson prime ministership coalesce around Labour or not? I think there is a difference between what happened in, in 2017 on two counts. First of all is is that the Conservatives committed an act of self-destruction with the social care issue. So at the beginning of the campaign, they weren't just looking at the percentage of the vote that they ended up getting in the low 40s. They were looking at the percentage of the vote which was in the top 40s. So it wasn't simply... And if that had happened, it doesn't matter what the opposition do, you just win. You just win. So we've got to factor that in. And I think then the second thing that then happened is is what you said in terms of the mobilisation around Labour of those who wanted... I'm not even sure, given what was going on at the time, it was even the hope of stopping Brexit, but at least making it a much, much softer Brexit, because obviously... Labour was it actually committed to leaving the single market and the customs union and respecting the the referendum result. But let's say it was a mixture of coalescing around trying to stop Brexit and projecting that onto the Labour Party and trying to get to a, a softer Brexit or at least ruling out a no deal Brexit when Theresa May was doing her no deal is not as bad as a, a bad deal position. Assuming this election, which I think it will happen after Britain's left the European Union and obviously it's possible that Britain won't, actually won't leave the European Union but on this scenario is that hope has 
is gone at that point. So the disciplining effect that first past the post creates in itself tied to we will be able to stop the Conservative Party doing what it wants to do in taking Britain out of the European Union on whatever terms it chooses has disappeared because then you've got to then hope of that you're voting for a party that might be able to return Britain to the European Union. And that seems to me a, a whole different kind of politics. But then the party of hope is the Liberal Democrats. I mean, the one party that would absolutely campaign on that promise would be the Liberal Democrats. But then you are into your splitting yeah, exactly. the, anti, the anti-Tory vote. I just think then that the circumstances that produced that moment in June 2017 are going to be quite difficult, in fact, if not impossible, to replicate if and when Britain is out of the European Union. So it kind of feels like, with Boris Johnson, that there's a very narrow path through the autumn into the new year. But it's at least possible that if he can walk it, and I'm not sure he can, if he can walk it, there's quite a big prize at the end of it. The default assumption is that this is going to be a disastrous prime ministership and it may well be but kind of if it isn't a disaster in the first six months and I think this is what's driving a lot of the optimism around the Conservative Party if it isn't a disaster in the first six months it could last six years I I think you know I hate making (laughs) predictions and that's the sort of default way of getting me to make a prediction (laughs) Uh, I'm just saying um you don't have to say No, anything. no, I don't think... I mean, I, I see the plaus- I, 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 I see why you're saying that. I mean... And if you say something else, one of us will be right. <laughs> I still think it's quite difficult, and, and for good reasons, we separated out what we're discussing into, you know, this week and next week. I still think it's quite difficult to think through these things in terms of the way things are likely or not to play out as far as we can make any judgments about that without bringing the substance at the heart of the impasse of backstop into proceedings and how Johnson is going to deal with that in relation to the EU and it could be that there is no path through in electoral terms because there's simply no path that gets us past that backstop issue. Our producer Catherine just said off mic that is a geeky cliffhanger for next week when we will have with us Chris Bickerton and Catherine Bernard and Helen and me and we're going to try and work out the next steps in the Brexit process, but particularly what we think is going to happen in the autumn. Before we go, I just want to recommend a couple of articles in the current issue of the London Review of Books because they're by regular guests on Talking Politics and they are both excellent. And we think people who like this podcast will get a lot out of them. One is John Lanchester writing about universal basic income and the other is Adam Tooze writing about contemporary German politics and how you get from Merkel to the Greens. Both of them are available for free at the LRB's website lrb.co.uk and finally we want to say thank you to all the teachers who filled in our survey and if you did please look on twitter at tppodcast underscore for more information about what we're going to do next but really thank you my name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics The fundamental question still seems to me whether the disciplining of pe- whether the disciplining effect of first past the post operates in the way it operates in. Sorry, that again. The fundamental point still seems to me the question: Will the disciplining effect of two? Ugh, one more go. The fundamental point seems to me to be still this question: Will the disciplining effect? Of- 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.